history is a, a sad story many times. Uh, if you study world history or history of Civic College, it almost feels like it's a parade of one tyrant and dictator and oppressive empire after another. There's very few people that you look at in history and you're like, man, those are real heroes that we want to be like, that we want to emulate. History teaches us about rulers who brutally repress their own people, rulers who greedily steal from their own people or from their neighbors, rulers who mistreat those who they should protect, rulers who are ineffective at doing the one thing that rulers ought to do, which is protect and defend those that God has placed under them. I think we sometimes make a mistake in thinking the, the, the blessings of liberty that we have in our nation are kind of the norm through history. They're really not. And Jesus came into a world that was ruled by such people. One individual that we meet in the early chapters of Matthew is a man by the name of Herod the Great. The, the prophecy that we'll be looking at today is referenced in Matthew chapter 2. We know the story. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and then the, the wise men come from the east. They come to Jerusalem. They figure, hey, Herod the Great should know what's going on. They say, where is he that's born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east. We've come to worship him. But Herod, of course, is not interested in bowing the knee to King Jesus. He's interested only in preserving his own power. Now, a little bit of background about Herod. He was paranoid. He was suspicious. So suspicious, by the way, that he murdered anyone who he thought posed a threat to him, including his own wife, whom he ostensibly loved passionately. He murdered her because he thought she might start an uprising against him. In his will... You know, here's what I'm going to do with my inheritance. He dictated the murder of one of his own kids in his will. We're talking about a brutal, horrible, paranoid, suspicious ruler. Now, truth be told, he was no king at all. Uh, the book of Matthew makes pains to sort of mockingly call him Herod the king, in contrast to Jesus, who is the true king, who is the better king. He only ruled by the consent of Rome and by the coercion of the sword. He demanded all of his subjects, because he was so insecure, to swear an oath of loyalty personally to him and insisted on being called the king of the Jews. By the way, kind of like Voltaire's Holy Roman Empire, he was neither Jewish nor a king. So when the wise men show up and they ask, where is he that's born king of the Jews? Herod's immediately thinking, there's a threat that I must get rid of, that I must repress, that I must destroy. And we know the story. He sends to, to find out, where is this? Bethlehem kills all the babies. In contrast, King Jesus comes to lay his life down, to give his life for his people, to, to rule out of love and out of meekness and through sacrifice, to rule in a way that Philippians 2 describes, as, as John read for us a moment ago. But in Matthew chapter 2, 6, he, he goes to, the, to sort of the wise men of his kingdom, to the, the biblical scholars, and says, hey, where's Messiah supposed to be born? And the scholars, they search the scriptures and say, well, according to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, okay, they didn't have chapter numbers then, but according to the prophet Micah, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so this is the prophecy I want to look, look at. What we have been doing this Advent season is walking through the prophecies that are in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2, that relate to the birth of Jesus. And there's a number of them. There's a constellation of these, these prophecies, these bright stars that shine in the dark firmament of history. These, these prophecies that come hundreds of years before Jesus was born that tell us he's going to be born of a virgin, he's going to be born in a specific place, that tells us about him going down to Egypt and a whole host of other things. That the birth of Jesus is not a historical, historical accident. It's not just a case of things just lining up just so and we connect the dots. It's planned and ordained by God. The birth of Jesus is the, is the high point of human history. 
But it's interesting, as you look at Matthew chapter 2, there is a deliberate contrast being drawn in that chapter between Herod, who's the imposter, between Herod, who's the wannabe king, and Jesus, who is the true king. Now, Micah chapter 5, where we will be this morning, the, the prophecy that they reference, actually draws a similar contrast. Let me give you a little bit of background on the book of Micah, because I, this is not a super familiar book to most of us. Micah's writing in the period around 750 B.C. He's actually a contemporary of Isaiah. He's writing in a time of, of sort of geopolitical turmoil where the Assyrian Empire is threatening the people of Judah from the north. There's a number of alliances trying to, to stand against them. Egypt's in the south. Judah is sort of trapped in a vice between the two, and they are tempted to not trust God, but instead trust the, the powers of their world. To make matters worse, they're marked by tremendous injustice, social injustice and inequity and the rich oppressing the poor and using their power and authority to take from those who have no defense. And so Micah is, is speaking to the people. Micah is an ordinary guy. Isaiah is kind of one of the elite speaking to the kings. Micah is kind of an ordinary guy speaking to the people, calling them to repent, calling them to trust God, calling them to look to God who is infinitely better than those they would want to trust. The way Micah is constructed is around a series of cycles where he will say, judgment's going to fall and here's why, but here's the promise of what God wants to do in the future. So it'll be one cycle that goes chapters one and two. Then we get the second cycle begins in chapter three, and what he does is says, look at your leaders. Your leaders are oppressive and they are wicked. All of chapter three is denouncing them. Then chapter four, he comes back around to say, but one day God is going to rule. He's the one who's going to rule righteously and perfectly. And it's in the middle of that cycle that we get Micah chapter 5. Your leaders are ineffective. Your leaders are wicked. Your leaders are unjust. But one day there's going to be a king who's going to come who is going to be just, who is going to be righteous, who's going to be everything that your leaders are not. So what we get here in in Micah chapter 5 is a portrait of the Messiah, given hundreds of years before he ever came, as the perfect king, the perfect ruler. It's just a common fact of history that there's never been any perfect rulers. I think we're aware of that at various times in our nation's life and in our local life and our political lives of just noticing our leaders are often ineffective. Sometimes they're corrupt. Sometimes they're downright evil. And we're tempted at times to look to some human to remedy that. But this passage is saying, look to Christ. So how is Jesus different? What is it that makes him the true and better king who is worthy of our loyalty and devotion? Remember what the wise men say, where is he that's born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east and have come to do what? We have come to worship him. Uh, Our takeaway from this text is not to just have some interesting trivia about, oh, look at the prophecies and like Israel in the 8th century BC. That's pretty cool stuff. But it's to see a portrait of King Jesus that makes us bow down and worship him and swear loyalty to him, and give all of our devotion and submission to him. So let's look at this promised king. The first feature of this promised king that makes him worthy of our loyalty and our devotion is this. The promised king rules his people. So verses 1 and 2, look back in Micah 5 and keep your Bibles open. We're going to walk through this and I want you to see. I want you to see that what I'm saying this morning is not just stuff I'm making up. This comes from the word of God. It comes from the Bible. So it begins with this call in verse 1, Gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. This oracle is being addressed to the people of of Israel, to the people of Zion. 
There's the impending threat of the Assyrians coming. Sennacherib's going to come, and he's going to lay siege to the city. Then about 125 years later, the, the, the Babylonians are going to come and do the same. We're talking about the city of Jerusalem facing this immediate threat, this immediate crisis of invasion and, and siege. So this is a call. Hey, city of Jerusalem, get the defenses ready for battle. He shall... Uh, He has laid siege against us. So the enemy, whether the Assyrians or the Babylonians. And then there's a statement at the end of verse 5. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. That word can even be translated as scepter. This is like the the king's own scepter is taken and used as a club to smack him on the side of the face. Okay, if you're getting smacked in the side of the face with your own scepter, you did not win the battle. It didn't go well for you. You're being mocked and you're being ridiculed. You can read in 2 Kings when the Babylonians finally took the city in 586 B.C. They took the last Davidic king, the last descendant of David ever to rule, named Zedekiah. And they took him outside of the city, and they had his sons in front of him, and they murdered his sons in front of him, and then gouged his eyes out. So literally the last sight he ever saw was his children being murdered. Like That's horrible. What's being described in verse 1 is the absolute failure of human leadership, the absolute failure of the Davidic line. Why? Because they were unfaithful. Why? Because they were disobedient to God. We've got a weak king here who can't even defend his own people, who can't even stand for righteousness. So in contrast, we come to verse 2. Notice, but thou. Okay, that's contrast. Okay, that's, that's Jerusalem. Those are the present kings that, that Judah has. It says, in contrast, but thou. Bethlehem Ephrata. Now, this should surprise us. Jerusalem was the capital city. Bethlehem wasn't the capital city. Bethlehem's a little village five miles outside of Jerusalem. It's a, it's a no-name place. We would not know about Bethlehem at all, except for the fact that a couple of really important people came from there. David was from Bethlehem, and then, of course, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Otherwise, it's a no-name place that would, would, would not be remarkable in any sense. In contrast to the weak king of verse 1, we get the true and effective king of verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come he forth unto me, that is to be the ruler of in Israel. So verse 1 talked about the judge of Israel. This one talks about the ruler of Israel. Both are referring to, to, to kings. Now, why is it important that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Well, for one thing, it's prophesied in this, this passage. But for another thing, it's like God is saying the, the, the line of David, it was, like a, it was like a tree that just got hacked down, right? You go cut a tree down, you get a chainsaw, you get an axe, you cut the tree down, there's just a stump that's left. When Zedekiah's eyes were put out, when the, the line of David was, was brought to an end in 586 B.C., there never was again a true king to sit on the throne of Judah. But what happens if you leave that stump long enough? Eventually, new growth begins to come out of it. And that's exactly what Isaiah 11.1 says. There's going to be a branch that's going to grow up. It's, it's to say there's going to be a new beginning, a new fulfillment of the line of David. The line of David that failed is going to get a new start. And just as it started the first time, in Bethlehem, it's going to get its new beginning in Bethlehem. Say there's going to be a, a one who is infinitely better than David or Solomon or Hezekiah or Ahaz or Manasseh or any of those kings who were all flawed. There's a new king coming. We get the statement, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah. Now that, that phrase thousands, okay, it, it, back when there were judges that were ordained over the people of Israel, 
Moses ordained judges, some who would be over thousands, some who would be over hundreds, some that would be over sort of families. Thousands is a reference to sort of a, a, a clan group or maybe a town or a city. He's saying, okay, the town of Bethlehem is so small, it doesn't even make it into the, the census data. Right, it's like those, some of those places you drive through in rural Alabama. There's like one blinking traffic light. It's not on the map. GPS doesn't know about it. That's Bethlehem. So a place that nobody has heard of unless you grew up there. It's called Bethlehem Ephrata because there's two Bethlehems. This is to say the one that's by Jerusalem where David came from. The point here is the kings of proud Jerusalem failed. And so Messiah is going to come in lowly Bethlehem. This incredible reversal. Okay, we sang, O little town of Bethlehem. I love how that, that, that's, that song juxtaposes the idea of in your dark street shines the everlasting light. Okay, in the little town comes the great king. And isn't that not just like God to work through the humblest of places? To work through the humblest of means. You know why God does that? Is so that we can take no bragging rights whatsoever. You know how God carries out his plan of redemption to the nations? Through vessels of clay standing up, declaring the message of salvation. If there's anything good or eternal that happens through the ministry of Cloverleaf Baptist Church, it's because God chose to do that. It's not because there's anything special in us. It's because God is infinite and awesome and glorious. The reason God ordained salvation to be by grace through faith alone is so that we can't take a single fig of the credit for ourselves. God said you'll be saved, you know, be by, mostly by grace through faith, but there's this little thing you've got to do. You've got to, like, jump through this one little hoop. Then we would take the credit for jumping through the one little hoop. But God says it's all of grace from beginning to end. It's all by grace through faith. Literally, the one response you have is saying, I can't do this, and I collapse into the arms of Jesus. He gets all of the praise, all of the glory, all of the credit. And in the birth of the Messiah, it doesn't come in the great place where Herod is orchestrating stuff, not in the halls. No, it comes in, in Bethlehem, through the little, through the ordinary, through the despised. So this prophecy is going to find fulfillment in Matthew chapter 2, when the Magi come. Where is he that's born king of the Jews? He's going to be in Bethlehem. But as we look at this, there's a stunning statement of this ruler's dignity. Okay, you're coming from the this little town, a no-name place, yet out of the, I do like the inclusion of the yet, okay, it's in italics, it's not actually in the Hebrew, but it gives us a sense of the force of this rhetorically. Little place, great ruler coming, yet out of thee shall come forth he unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. So I, I, I like how this is in the Hebrew, he will, from you to me, as those put right next to each other, out of this little place, for God is going to come this ruler. Which means this, the the Messiah, the one, the ruler who's going to be born in Bethlehem is not ruling for himself. Think about what made Herod such a lousy, horrible king. It was all about him, right? What made Nero such a horrible ruler? It's all about him. Burn Rome down, build a bigger palace. This one comes, and he is going to rule for Yahweh. He's going to rule for God, for God's glory, for God's fame, doing God's will. He, Jesus himself said, I, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He, the whole point of the temptation in the wilderness is Jesus saying, I'm going to do the will of the Father. I'm not going to strike off and do my own thing. He came to do the Father's will perfectly. As John read earlier, he became a a servant. Someone who's going to do the will of another came to do the will of his Father. 
Okay, he's going to come from you, from this little place, for me, the one who's to be ruler in Israel, the one who's going to be the true king in the place of the, one, the ones who failed, the ones who were not good kings. Then we got this phrase at the end of verse 2, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. There's two ways we can read this. One is to say David's line is really ancient and has ancient origins. Or this could be an absolute statement to say this Messiah is eternal in his origins. And I think the latter is what is going on. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By the way, when you're reading Word there, it's not talking about the Bible. That's not to say that the Bible is God. The Word there is a reference, another reference to Jesus Christ. He did not come into existence in that manger in Bethlehem. He is God. He is the I am from eternity past. He never had a beginning and he never will have an ending. He's Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, the eternal God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Everything you and I know is contingent. Everything you and I know has a beginning and it has an ending. Even the universe itself, no matter how old you think the universe is, even if you're like, it's billions of years old, even if you think that it started at some point, and scientists tell us it's going to wind down eventually into some kind of big fireball, right? It's got a beginning. It's got an ending. Your life has a beginning, and it will have an ending, but not Jesus Christ. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is God. Micah would have been a contemporary of Isaiah, and here's why I think this interpretation is legitimate. It's not unlikely that he would have heard Isaiah preach, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Father of Eternity, the Prince of Peace. And at the end of his government, there shall be no end. This one's the fulfillment of everything that David was meant to be. His kingdom will never end. David's kingdom came to an end. Right? Every empire in history has come to an end. The, the, the vaunted Assyrian Empire, who they were freaking out about, lasted just a few more decades, and then poof, it's gone into the dustbin of history. The Babylonians, who came along, were so mighty and powerful, lasted a few decades. The Persians, they hung around a little longer. The Greeks didn't last long. The Romans lasted for a few centuries. They disappeared. The, the British Empire, it rose, it fall. The American Empire has risen. It too will fall one day. It will one day be nothing more than a footnote in history, but the kingdom of Christ will rule forever. That's where our hope is. He, so the, the, the prophecy here is that he would be king. Everything about verse 2 is saying king, king, king. Bethlehem, David, the king. Ruler, he's the king. Eternal God, he's the king in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Now, here's the question I wrestled with this week. Micah is saying this in 735-ish B.C. It's not going to be fulfilled. It's not going to do anything for these people for hundreds of years. They're still going to face the onslaught of Sennacherib. They're still going to have the Babylonians come along and take them into exile for 70 years. They're still going to face centuries of foreign oppression. And even after Messiah came, centuries more of oppression. Like, what does a prophecy do for us? It's not immediate helping me now. You see, we live in sort of a, an instant culture where you, I want to pull my phone up and make the order and have it delivered yesterday, right? Like, if Amazon Prime comes through in three-day delivery instead of two-day delivery, I'm like, I'm canceling, right? Uh, you, we want everything instantaneous. And so we wrestle with what good is a prophecy that's not going to be fulfilled for hundreds of years? Because, again, Mike is not just giving this for, like, 
Yeah, here's this interesting thing that's going to happen hundreds of years from now. This was meant to give the people confidence in the present crisis. He's speaking to a nation in crisis. And I think here's why. He's telling them, don't look to human rulers to give you hope. Your hope's not going to be found in Ahaz. It's not going to be found in Tiglath-Pileser. It's not going to be found in Pharaoh Hophra. It's not going to be found in any of the great rulers of the age, any of the parties of the day. It's found in the coming ruler, the coming king. Beloved, we need to remember that all kings and rulers and justices and senators and congressmen and presidents and mayors and prime ministers and members of parliament will eventually fail. Even if they're really awesome, they're eventually going to die. They will let us down, but Jesus alone rules in perfection and permanence. And I say that to you because so many Christians are riding the roller coaster of what's going on in our world and what's happening in the news and up and down. We shouldn't be riding that roller coaster. We should be standing on the Rock of Ages, looking to the King of Kings. Divine deliverance from their political insignificance would come from insignificant Bethlehem. I think that's just so beautiful, such an insight into the ways of God, that he would rescue this nation from insignificance, not by giving them political power, but by giving them the Savior of the world. So the promised king, what makes him the true and better king is he rules his people. He's going to come to be the ruler in Israel, not just a passive king who sits back and everybody beats him. This is a ruler who rules and who wins, and his kingdom is forever. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our, of his, of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's why he's the true and better king. But let me give you another attribute, another feature of the promised king. Verse 3, we learn that he is going to gather his people. Verse 3 is a tough verse. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. We're like, what's going on there? Why is that therefore? What's that therefore? Therefore. Okay, think, keep in mind of what Micah is doing. He's saying, things are really, really bad right now. Let's zoom out. Okay, God's got a plan for the future that things are going to be really good. Now he's coming back in. However, in the meantime, things are not going to be awesome. So he, God, will give them, Israel, over. He's going to hand his people over to foreign oppression. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, all those empires. They're going to dominate, eventually, the Romans. But notice there's that little word, until. All of that is setting the stage for Messiah's invasion into this world. So he comes to gather his people out of oppression. Now, until she which travaileth hath brought forth, there's this image of birth. Now, some people say, well, that's referring to the mother of the Messiah, maybe to Mary. But in the context, look back in verse 10 of chapter 4. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman, what? In travail. So in this, in this prophecy, in this sermon, he's already used this imagery of the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, they're like a woman that is in travail, going through pain and through agony. What he's saying is all of that is building up to something. All of that is building up to the Messiah coming into this world. Galatians 4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son to be born under the law, right? It's setting the stage of history for the moment that God would have Jesus to come. 
So here's Israel going through all of this. God is saying to them, it's going to last a while. The oppression is going to last a while. But it's going to result in the Messiah, in the ruler coming into this world. He's saying it's bad now, but the king is coming. The oppression is bad now, but the king is coming. The suffering is bad now, but the king is coming. That's the message. Now, why does he give that to them? Because he's calling them to be faithful through the suffering. You do realize that God often takes us through suffering. We don't have a promise anywhere in the Bible that God's like, hey, you're going to have a great life. You come believe in Jesus. No more suffering, and it'll be unicorns and roses and just happiness. And, and, and No, he, we're promised to go through suffering before we enter glory. Israel had to go through oppression before the king came. Had to go through night before the dawn broke. So believing God's promises is not just about this cheery sense of like, hey, it's going to be all right. But it's about clinging to the promise of God's future grace. Even when everything in your circumstances is crying out against that. To say, I'm going to hold to God's promises that the king is going to come and that he is going to reign. So Israel's pain preceded Messiah's birth. That's the point of verse 3. But look at the second part. Then... Okay, so then the Messiah comes in, then the remnant of his brethren. Okay, what tribe is he coming from? He's coming from the tribe of Judah. Okay, then shall the remnant of his brethren return unto the children of Israel. A little bit of the setting here. The the nation of Israel was split in two northern ten tribes were the people of Israel, the southern tribe, Judah. They'd been divided since the end of Solomon's reign. By the way, never been reunited saying this one's going to come and he's going to actually gather and he's going to reunite God's people. Now, I take this to be language you kind of double-click on, right? This is not just a bare bones, Israel and Judah will be reunited one day. But to say that this Messiah is going to be like a shepherd, if you look in verse 4, he shall stand and feed or shepherd in the strength of the Lord. He's like a shepherd gathering the sheep from all over and bringing them in together. He's going to gather together God's people. And I think Israel means a little bit more here than just ethnic Israel, Jewish people, all of those who are God's people, all of those whom he will save, gathering together. We see this. Jesus comes. He gets a little nucleus of 12 guys. By the end of his ministry, there's 120 who believe in him or meeting in an upper room in the book of Acts. Day of Pentecost comes along, and the Spirit falls on them. They begin speaking in all of the languages of heaven. And all these Jewish people who are at Jerusalem from the world over hear it, and a great number come to faith in Jesus this new thing beginning called the church. And the message begins to go out from there, from Jerusalem to Judea, then on to Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And these people begin to believe in Jesus, this gathering of people, the good shepherd gathering sheep together into his fold. Now, some people will have a problem with that to say, no, it says Israel, it says Judah, that's all that it can mean. The early church took language like this to say, this is including the the, the salvation of the Gentiles. Let me just show you this in the book of Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, there's a big brouhaha going on in the early church um, over non-Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus. Some people say, well, they've got to follow the Old Testament law and they've got to adopt Jewish customs in order to really be in, in order to really be kosher, so to speak. And Paul is saying, no, you get included by faith alone. It's not about these cultural badges. And they're fighting about it. And then James, who is uh, the half-brother of Jesus, he stands up. He's sort of the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. 
And what he does is he appeals to Old Testament prophecies of God reestablishing Israel to say, this is happening now. And how is God reestablishing Israel? By bringing in those from the outside and including them. So look at in Acts 15, verse 13. And when they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, that's, that's Peter, hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name, a new people of God. Jews, Gentiles, believing in Jesus. And to this agree the words of the prophets, prophets as it is written. And here's a quote from Amos chapter 9. After this I will return and I will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and I will build again the ruins thereof and I will set it up. Strictly speaking, talking about David. But he's saying this is being fulfilled in Gentiles, non-Jews being saved. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Now here's the point that I'm making. The promised king not only rules, but he's gathering people to himself. He promises to do this, by the way, over in John chapter 10. He's talking about the fact I'm the good shepherd, right? And I give my life for my sheep. And he says in verse 16, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Okay, there's people that I am saving who are not Jewish, is what he is saying. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. We get in, beloved. We get, we, we get in, we get included in this plan of redemption, gathering the remnant of Israel and Judah. Now, this does find literal fulfillment when we get to the end of history, the end of the tribulation period, there's this national conversion of Israel and a regathering of Israel. This is literally going to be fulfilled, but it's starting now. Now, this is what is amazing. The perfect king does not divide, but he unites. He gathers his people together. And he is actively seeking and gathering people from the world over. This is why we preach the gospel so we can be an instrument that he uses to bring people into that fold, to bring sheep into that fold, to bring people into his kingdom. This is why you go and share the gospel with your neighbors and with your family members. Because the good shepherd is gathering people to himself. Gathering them out through repentance and faith, through the gospel going out to whosoever will. He's actively seeking and gathering sheep from the world over, and we get to be part of that message of reconciliation and forgiveness. So it's inaugurated now. It's going to be fulfilled one day in the kingdom. But this promised king, he rules his people, he gathers his people, but third, look at this next attribute of the promised king in verse 4. He shepherds his people, and he shall stand and feed, we could render that word, and shepherd in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide. They shall live safe and sound. This king is not like the kings of the ancient world who were tyrants who ruled with an iron fist. He's a shepherd king. So think about what the Bible says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. All of the gentleness, all of the tenderness of a shepherd for sheep is the gentleness and the tenderness of this one as he rules his people. The new king is compared to a shepherd. By the way, this was a common metaphor for a king, why David was a shepherd. He becomes king, so God used that metaphor, hey, you're going to shepherd my people, you're going to guide them, you're going to feed them. 
And unlike the wicked rulers who took, if you look back in Micah chapter, chapter 3, just let me give you a sampling of this. Micah chapter 3 says, Here I pray you, O heads of Jacob and ye princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment, who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from their bones? He's saying the leaders of the people of Israel are simply taking all they can from their people. You know what the good shepherd does? The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep, according to John 10. John chapter 10, I think, is a commentary in large part on passages like Isaiah 34 and Micah 5 verse 4. Jesus is saying, I'm the true king, but I'm the true king who does what? I give my life for my sheep in their place. The primary way by which Jesus shepherds his people, get this, is by dying in the place of sinners. God, this is stunning. In the Old Testament, shepherds would often raise flocks so that they would have sacrifices. Day of Atonement, or Passover, or the daily sacrifice, or the sin offering. And so you would raise sheep so that sheep could die, and often, often for the shepherd. But Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to change that up a little bit. This is not the sheep dying for the shepherd. This is the shepherd dying for the sheep. This is the king dying for his people. This is the ruler laying it all down for those he rules over. And Jesus goes to the cross as the good shepherd, taking all of our guilt, all of our sin, all of our law-breaking, all of our rebellion on himself, and taking the wrath of God on himself, and paying the penalty saying, it is finished to secure our forgiveness and our reconciliation with God and our righteousness and our freedom. So he's going to stand and shepherd by laying his life down and rising again from the dead. He's empowered by Jehovah. He says, I'm going to do this in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of his God. This is going to be all about glorifying God. But notice the result for the sheep of the shepherd at the end of verse 4. And they shall... Abide. The sense of that is they will live in safety and security. Look back in Micah 4, verse 4. And they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. Just, that's just the image of safety. You're not worried about the enemy. You're not worried about danger. Those who belong to Christ, those who are his sheep. He says also in John 10, and I give unto them, he says, okay, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. He says, I've come that I, that, that, to give them life, and life more abundantly. This shepherd gives to his sheep life. He doesn't take it from them. He gives it to them through his death. But not just any life, he gives them eternal life that's never going to end, that can never be taken away for those who are his sheep to be eternally secure in him. We love passages like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But today, if you're here, to, you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, there's never been a time that you've repented of your sins and put your trust in Jesus. That is not actually true of you. The only ones who can say the Lord is my shepherd are those who have been brought into his fold. Those who have heard his voice and have come in repentance and faith to him. I would implore you, if you are not a believer today, if you are not sure of your salvation, I would implore you today to repent of your sin 
and bow the knee to King Jesus. Trust in him today. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done, what your background is. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter your background. There is a promise of complete forgiveness and inclusion in God's people for all who repent. But I need to hasten on here to to a fourth aspect of this promised king. He rules, he gathers, he shepherds. But he delivers his people. Verses 5 and 6 bring it back to the present crisis for Judah. The present crisis is the Assyrians are like literally knocking on the door. They're very soon going to encircle the city of Jerusalem. And this man, the, the promised ruler from Bethlehem, he shall be the peace. He shall be our peace. He will secure our peace when the Assyrians will come into the land. Now notice the end of verse 6. This is the key phrase. Uh, thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian. Now, what's described here, Jesus does not literally come and lead this army and go to Assyria. They don't even exist by the time of his coming. The Assyrians sort of stand as a representative of all of the enemies of God's people. Right? They're the, the immediate threat. They're the, the, the danger that everyone's like, Assyrian, that equals all of our enemies. And the key phrase there is the end of verse 6, he will deliver us from this unbeatable enemy, this enemy we could never beat on our own. By the way, God did this in the days of Hezekiah when Sennacherib came and he killed 185,000 of Sennacherib's troops and delivered Jerusalem. But after that, other enemies came, other enemies came, other enemies came. You know the greatest enemy is death. 1 Corinthians 15 says that the final enemy that will be conquered will be death. That's what we're looking forward to. And Jesus conquered death through his death, his burial, his resurrection. For the people of Judah, the greatest threat imaginable to them was the Assyrians. Let me ask you a question. Just brainstorm really quickly. What do you view as the greatest threat and danger in our world today? You don't need to say it, but just think about what what that is. Maybe it's a global catastrophe of some kind or a, a, a nuclear holocaust. Maybe you think it's systemic racism. Maybe it's progressive socialism. Maybe it's personal loneliness. Maybe it's just widespread academic underachievement. Maybe it's corruption in the government. Maybe it's moral decay in the nation. Maybe it's something else. But I would submit to you the greatest danger in our world today and the greatest danger you face is the sin that lurks in your own heart. It's the danger of... Death, you will one day die and stand before the Creator God. That's the greatest danger. And all the other dangers in our world, all the other injustices in our world, spring from that reality that we live in a fallen world. I'll tell you, whatever you think is the greatest danger in our world, you then think of a solution to that, and that becomes functionally your gospel, your good news. There's some people today who say the greatest danger in the world is climate change, And the good news is that we can deal with this by doing such and such things to our CO2 emissions. And that functionally becomes the gospel. You're like, why is there this religious fervor behind all these isms? It's because that functionally becomes your gospel when you say, that's my biggest problem. Or if you say the biggest problem is is secular socialism, and then you'll say, well, the answer is going to be Christian nationalism, and there's this religious fervor after an unbiblical solution. The biggest problem is none of those things. The biggest problem is sin. And the only solution is Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And that message critiques all the other would-be gospels in our world. 
the ultimate danger to Israel wasn't Assyria. It was them trusting someone other than Jehovah. And so this is a statement of saying, this one will be the one to deliver us from our enemies. He's going to raise up ones to deliver us from them and bring about a total victory. We get this statement in verse 6. He's going to waste the land of Assyria. Judah never had that kind of power. They never had that kind of victory over the Assyrians. But when Jesus died on the cross, he defeated all enemies for all time. He wasted death. He destroyed sin. And he rose again victorious over them. We get this image of a parade in, in, in Ephesians 4 of him leading a triumph back into the city with all of the enemies in tow under his authority. And one day Jesus will return and he will exert that rule over this world, over every corner of it. We have the statement at the end of verse 4. He shall be great unto the ends of the earth. Okay, that's begun now as the gospel is celebrated. The name of Jesus is sung in every nation, tribe, and tongue even now. But one day he will return, and knowledge the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We don't make that happen. King Jesus makes that happen. Jesus actually delivers his people. Now, I think we all understand this theoretically. Jesus delivers me from sin and death. I want to ask you this. You're a Christian today. What has he actually delivered you from? Not just a theoretical, well, hell and sin in these sort of theoretical ways. No, like what practical, tangible ways have you seen his transforming grace in your life? Has there been a change in your life? Can you say, yes, he's delivered me from, from bitterness or from lust or from addiction or from, from anger. Like, what has he delivered you from? How are you different because of the work of Jesus in your life? It is absurd, beloved, to say, Jesus has come and transformed me, the very control center of my life. But my life is sort of no different than it was the way before. That, that's absurd. Jesus saves you. He transforms you. If he delivers you, he doesn't just deliver you theoretically from sin. He delivers you from sin and begins the work of defeating sin in your life until the day that we are glorified in his presence. Speaking of glorification, I just want to summarize these last few verses. I didn't plan to walk through them. But verses 7 on down to 15, we read these earlier, is describing this coming glory for Israel. We believe that there's going to be a millennial kingdom one day where Israel will be at the head of the nations and Jesus will rule over everything. But the promised king glorifies his people. He glorifies his people. He's going to do that for Israel in a really unique way in the, in the kingdom. But every child of God, we have the promise of Romans 8 that says, all those whom he justified... You believe in Jesus, you're declared righteous. Every single one he justifies, them he also glorified. The promised king doesn't just save us and then just kind of leave us. He brings us all the way through to glory. That's our destiny. That's our hope. That's our life. That's what we look forward to. Now, the big takeaway from this, you know what you do do to kings? You bow before them. You know what you do to kings? You obey them. If Jesus is the king, we're like, hey, yes, yeah, all these things are true. He's the true king. He's the better king. He's the king in my life. Does he have sway in your life? Does he really tangibly, practically, in a day-in, day-out, Monday-morning kind of way, set the terms of how your life is lived? I, I think it is easy to, to sort of reduce Christianity to... We go to church once a week, and then we go out and we sort of live just like everyone else in our, in our culture, and we just sort of try to live nice moral lives and be respectful to people. 
You don't need Jesus to live a nice moral life and be respectful to people. You do need Jesus to love your enemies. You do need Jesus to forgive when you are wronged. You do need Jesus to love your wife even as Christ loved the church. You do need Jesus to be able to bear up under unimaginable suffering, putting your hope on the promise of glory. You do need Jesus to be delivered in your heart of hearts from the power of sin and to have your affections changed. These have preeminence in all things according to Colossians 1. Does Jesus have sway over your entertainment choices? What you watch, does it please him? Is it, do, you, do you consider, is this going to be honoring to him? Does he have sway over your budget? That I'm setting my budget for the month, and the fact that Jesus is king is influencing the way this is being done. Does he have authority in your marriage, or is it just about me always getting my way, or is it always saying, no, we want Jesus to get his way in this marriage, even if that means I don't get my way? Does he have sway over your affections? What do you love? What do you love most of all? What do you long for most of all in this life? We ask it differently, what do you fear most of all? Because our loves and our fears go together. Love Christ with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If he's king, if we really believe that he's king, if we really bow to him as king, these are the things that ought to be true. It's in a world that's full of Herods. Praise God that the king of the universe is King Jesus. Father, May we live in absolute submission and awe.